Alrighty. How many uh, points did Mike end up with? Eight. Did he? Or did he go to nine? Yeah, because I mean, if he, if, he, if he landed on eight, that would be profound. That would be like the whole, I mean, that's the whole eighth day thing. You know, when you're going the other side of the seventh day and there's that whole thing. We're not even going to go there right now. That's, that's amazing. Um, all right. Good. Well, I was really thankful for that last um, session. Much of what I'll say now really, I think, comes, comes into that and uh, supports everything Mike was saying. And um, what we want to do is continue on, really, from, uh, if you can remember, just a, a session or so back, um, where we have laid the foundation, and we want to see that unfold now, um, focusing on the new creation itself. So now, remember, when I say new creation, I'm thinking Sabbath, I'm thinking kingdom, I'm thinking all of those things are synonymous, right? And uh, you have in mind uh, the way that that works from Genesis. And I want to move throughout the Bible and quickly through to get a sense of the buildup uh, and the enormity of what happens when Christ arrives on the scene and brings in the kingdom and the new creation and the goal of history. So it's a big thing we want to look at and a big thing we want to achieve. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's help, and then we'll go. <clears throat> Father, we, again, are so thankful for the sessions that have gone by and, and just uh, all we've already had uh, opportunity to think about and talk about and meditate upon how good you are to us, how gracious, how amazing is the good news. And I pray, God, that you would help us to, to end by just rejoicing in this, exulting in the greatness, in the glory of what you have done. We know we can't do that on our own. We need you. We labor in vain without you. We ask that you would please be with us and help us to track along with that which you've revealed so that we might worship our Savior. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. All right, so continuing on from where we left off, there is Sabbath life that is held out before Adam in the garden. We see that he failed to follow God. He fell short of the glory of God, and that would mean that all is lost, but for those precious words in Genesis 3.15, where once again, this life is held out before man through the worthiness of a covenant keeper, the one who would come, the coming Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent, and the one who wouldn't merely bring them back into the garden and get them to start all over again, but who would achieve the thing held out before Adam. And the one who would have dominion, that's a key idea, talking about it during coffee, the, the one who actually achieved dominion, right? We saw much of why that was important in terms of Adam's original task. But with that in mind, I think it's critical to see that a lot, you know, we, we ended off with Adam and Eve and the hope that they had in this Genesis 3.15 promise. I think it's really important to see how from Adam and Eve onwards, all the hope of the saints has always been fixed upon that. Even when things get difficult, and they did, they got very difficult very quickly. I mean, Cain kills Abel, on it goes, aggressive spread of evil. I mean, by the time you're in Genesis chapter 5, See that death is this major thing. The common curse is kicking in, right? You don't read those um, genealogies. And he died. Duff, duff, duff. And he died. Duff, duff, duff. And it's like this drumbeat, this 
dreaded refrain, this tyranny of death. Everyone's dying. The godly are dying. The wicked are dying. And, you know, we're like, of course, but this is the first time it's happening. I mean, everyone's dying. No one gets away. The curse. And yet, amidst all of this, amazingly, the promise is already in view. Uh, the seed, collective, remember it can be singular and collective, that word in Hebrew. The, the, there, is a, there is a collective preservation of the seed, despite this tyranny of death and this aggressive spread of evil, God is keeping a people who will call upon his name. And we see that around chapter 4. They rest in the hope that they have in the Lord. And then as you work through the story, I, I love this part because like, if you were reading the Bible properly for the first time, I know no one actually does that, but, but imagine you did, right? Imagine you just were super alert and you were studying Genesis and you kind of got it right the first time. You'd be reading... And you, there's kind of this overlap that happens in terms of what you're expecting as the reader and what they're going through as the people you're reading about because it's all about the seed, right? So what are you thinking as the reader? You're thinking, well, is it that one? Is it that one? Is it Cain? No, it's definitely not Cain. Is it Abel? Is, you know, we're just tracking like that. Until, and that's what they're thinking as well. You get to Enoch, and it says, he walked with God. Okay, that's good. So maybe, maybe Enoch. And certainly if we take some insights from Jude and, you know, what Enoch was all about and, you know, the way he stood as a preacher against the prevailing evil. I mean, what you have is a man who was dedicated, who was dedicated to this word that God had proclaimed. And God would begin to take the prophetic hope in Genesis 3.15 that was proclaimed by these men and pictured by these men to show a world now under the onslaught of the tyranny of death, that there is a way. There is a way. Because we're, you know, we're reading Genesis 5, verse 23, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, so a whole life associated to this message. And then we've just read a whole lot of genealogies. We're expecting the dreaded refrain, and he died. But it doesn't happen. God uses the Sethite prophet to picture the hope that had been proclaimed. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In other words, translated him into the age to come. In other words, and I love what, here's the Klein quote. Here we go. Enoch becomes a prophetic sign in the midst of the prevailing death of the redemptive victory over the prince of death to be won by the coming seed. Exactly what Genesis 3.15 had declared, right? By breaking the power of death in this Sethite prophet. He shows that all who would give heed to the word of God, there is your hope, the only hope that you have to enter in to the age to come. Now, I think, you know, Enoch and all who proclaimed Enoch's message, uh, it would have been clear to, the, to those on the ground at the time, it would have been consistent over a long period of time, but it obviously wasn't well received because we know that by the time of Noah, I mean, the whole covenant line is like whittled down to one family, so it would have been a terrible time. You know, when sometimes you feel like you're the only believer out there, or the only church that really believes, and, you know, well, I mean, there they were, Difficult, difficult time. Probably a lot of persecution. It's, you know, hard to say. We have to guess. But there they are, and it would have been bad. And Lamech, good Lamech, not the bad Lamech, good Lamech, knows father. He's, um, 
You can tell he hopes in this promise. Can you imagine, just there you are in this world of evil, and he names his son Noach, which means rest. Now, what rest is he thinking about? Well, obviously the rest that, you know, we've fallen short of the rest that has been promised, the rest that his forefather had proclaimed, the rest that he wants to enter, and he knows this is coming through a seed. So it's not looking very good, though. You know, there they are, the last people. I mean, what's going on? And then he has this baby boy, and you can almost see him saying, Lord, please, maybe this one will bring us rest. Uh, 528 in Genesis, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, now look what he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He's I mean, he has definitely got the curse in view. He is, you know what he's thinking. In fact, scholars point out he actually reserve, he reverses the, the words of the curse in the Hebrew. So he's, he's, he's hoping for the rest through the reversal of the curse through the promised Noah, the promised one, the seed. So if we're reading this for the first time or living this for the first time, you'd be forgiven for thinking, okay, whoa, I mean, is this, this must be the one, right? I mean, surely, what else have we got? And Noah kind of grows up and doesn't disappoint. I mean, he is blameless in his generation. He, through his acts of obedience, builds a vehicle through which to bring the remnant through the end of the world, right, to the new creation. I mean, you really have this, remember we are talking about the union of, of heavens and earth, the anticipated union, the end of the world. You've got the heavens above, the, the waters above and the waters below uniting to bring the earth back to a state of its watery chaos. Pat spoke about the sea and the water and the chaos on Friday night. It's, it's returned to this. It's a judgment. And yet, it's a redemptive judgment because as the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the waters in Genesis 1.1, now once again the ark God's work hovers upon the face of the waters, pregnant with new life. And what you have in the giving of the ark, the building instructions for the ark, God only ever reveals instructions for the ark, tabernacle, and the temple. And that's important because these are very, very symbolic, very important to represent the cosmos, the restored order. And so you have this three-layer thing. I won't get into it, into it now, but there's the ark, right? And you have all of the created order under the dominion of Noah, right? I mean, the animals are coming to him and everything and getting in and obeying and just this amazing picture, like a little microcosm of what the new creation will be like when the true Messiah comes and has dominion. There it is on the face of the waters. And a kind of temple, as it were, bringing them back to Eden. And the waters gradually recede and we know a dove comes to Noah and brings evidence that there is, in fact, a new creation under these waters. That are, and you can imagine being on the ark. I mean, that would have been pretty exciting stuff. But they had to wait for a little while until the waters recede. Imagine you were standing on earth on the, on the mountain looking at the ark underwater coming down slowly from heaven, landing upon the mountain, just like it will be at the end. All these amazing images that you see right up front. Now, you might be forgiven at that point for stopping and going, okay, whoa, 
I mean, surely that's it, right? Genesis 3.15, done. We have got Noah. He's like landed with the new creation order on the mountain. I mean, now they're going to go forth and surely this is it. But remember, it's not just about getting back into a new garden situation. It's about asking the question, can Noah do better than Adam? Can he, can he obey where Adam had failed? And you know, the picture keeps going in Genesis 9, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the Adama, the soil. Right, so this immediate connection with Adam. And he planted a vineyard, fruit trees. Right, so you have the Eden scene, 2.0. And uh, we can't help ourselves. We have to, okay, well, what, is he going to do a better job? Well, we, we're not even finished asking the question. When we see in verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. He partook of the fruit in a sinful way and was uncovered in his dwelling. Sound familiar? Right? Complete with serpentine figure and everything, coming with the purposes of exposing this man in his dwelling. Right? We've seen it before. That's what happened with Adam. So as surely as... The Eden scene is before us again. The fall scene is before us again, too. Saying what? Saying, nope, nope, that's not it. You have a cleansed old creation, but you don't have the new creation just yet. And then there's another part of this pattern that we'll see again and again. As soon as you're saying, well, what, what about the promise then? Right at the end of this failure comes another proclamation of the gospel, the hope that is truly going to emerge in light of the picture that has just been. In this case, Noah and his famous oracle, we don't have time to camp there, but he, he prophesies that the true Messiah will come through the lineage of Shem, and we know that we go through Eber, and we get to Abraham, and then God would come to Abraham, and he would expand on these promises which are echoes of what he's already promised to Noah, which are echoes of what he's already promised to Adam, right? And so here we are set up for the Exodus, the next big crea new creation typology. God was, a was about to move to deliver his people as a result of what he had promised Abraham, right? And he's going to crush the head of the serpent, and he's going to bring the people into a new land flowing with milk and honey. And then there you are. I mean, it's, you know, I forgot what they're called, those, um, you know, those, uh, the headdress that the pharaoh used to wear. They, they, they were modeled after the cobra, right? So there he is standing. Talk about a serpentine figure, right? There he is looking like a cobra, literally. And uh, he's, got, he's got these magicians who are like super serpentine. And then you've got like serpents, you know, running around. I mean, it's total, lots of clues, right? And, and here is Moses and the conflict begins. And he, what can we say? Through these series of events, crushes them. And then we know we get to the new uh, or at least the, the Red Sea, where don't, don't miss what's happening over there. Yes, it's amazing, but it's a symbolic reenactment of creation, right? You have days one to three all over again. There, God divides the waters. God's presence is associated with the ruach, the wind that begins to blow, the emergence of dry land, right? He hovers over his people as the new corporate Adam now emerged from the sea, created by God to be those who will enter into a land flowing with milk and honey. Amazing picture. And in fact, you know, Exodus 15, the famous song of Moses. Let me just read a little bit for you. Exodus 15, verse 16. 
terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So, I mean, like you can't miss it, right? As Glad says, they're formed out of the chaos of Egypt and are now a corporate Adam moving into the new Eden. And so again, step back and you go, okay, wait a minute. Well, I get this. I get it. Genesis 3.15 has a collective sort of idea to it. So this must be the fulfillment of the promise. And then, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that because this is pretty profound, right? Here they are. They're about to enter in. And so the question you're asking is, can they do a better job than Adam? And like, wow, you know, they're hardly even settled before you have the answer to that one, worshiping golden calves and stuff, right? So what you have is a cut and paste of Adam and Eve at that point. Um, it's the full imagery, again, repeated very, very quickly. So imagine you were Adam and Eve just after the exile that we ended off the last session with. What would you, you see the fiery sword and everything, what would you be looking at? What would that have looked like? You'd be looking up a mountain. It's likely that Eden was on this mountain. And you would see that you would not be able to enter in because a fiery prohibition of judgment keeps you from entering God's presence, right? The, the, the sword of fire, angelic guardians. Well, that's exactly what Israel is now seeing. As they get to Sinai, there is God's presence on the mountain. There he is. But they can't get to him because the same fiery judgment awaits this angelic prohibition. Cannot ascend to God. In fact, what's amazing about that is that um, the word Horeb associated with Sinai is, is, and Hereb is sword in Hebrew. And so the only reason those are different sounding words is because of the vowels which came later. And so it's actually the flaming sword mountain. You could read it that way. Right? So it's literally a cut and paste of Adam and Eve. You're seeing the whole thing and it's like, whoa, it's happening again. Except a corporate version of it. And so we have our answer. This is very clearly not the solution. This is not the new creation. But remember the pattern? As soon as we're like, oh, it's not the solution. And then the real solution emerges, moving the story forward. Because what does God do? He condescends. He comes down. He descends to tabernacle in their midst to create a way for them to come to his presence. And he does so through another building project. Reveals something like the ark, except now with a little bit more definition, but the same basic purpose in that it has its Edenic floral imagery all over the place, right? Bringing to mind, it's meant, meant to be like a portable Eden, symbolic Eden, where you have the cherubim on the, on the curtain guarding the way to God's throne room, and in the middle, the tree of life, the stylized tree of life in the menorah lampstand, Right? beckoning to life beyond the veil, now only accessible through blood sacrifice, priestly covering, all that we saw already in Adam and Eve, substitutionary atonement. All of these things, once again, 
before them. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. It, re it really is amazing to see all these correspondences between uh, what, what happens in the building of the tabernacle. It's like se the seven creation fiats in Genesis, and then you've got the, the seven speeches of Moses, and then you've got the Sabbath at the end, and you've got the Sabbath at the end, and then you've got uh, at the end of all of this building, God fills the tabernacle, as Gerhardus Vas says, showing the full embodiment of salvation. This is what the end of history is all about. This is reinforcing where the whole thing is going. The age to come, the new creation, that's the real solution. So it's like the ark, but now with more definition. And again, we can move this Eden around because their, their job wasn't just simply to have their sins atoned for, but to enter the land and have dominion. And so we know, off, off they go into Canaan. Once again, crossing the Jordan, a symbolic reenactment, all that we've said before. And God would eventually use his theocratic army to have dominion, but he wouldn't do it through the first fallen king, Saul. He would do it through the last or the second king, David. Right? And uh, again, we know when David gets on the scene, Got a few clues when he, when he faces Goliath. I mean, there he is. You know, firstly, Goliath is literally at the seed of the serpent, sons of Anakim. And uh, he, sometimes the translations take away that he has like a serpentine or a, a scaly, scaly sort of armor on. So he looks kind of like a snake again. You know, and he's from this lineage. And you have David who, who like makes him eat dust, literally by chopping his head off. So all these things going on, right? And then goes on to totally win over the land and subdue the people and, and uh, enter into Sabbath glory and establish uh, the place of Zion as the permanent abode of the house of God and hands over to his son who starts to build the temple and you have this unprecedented Sabbath prosperity and okay, step back again. Surely this one, surely this is it. Uh, you know, honestly, imagine you were an Israelite at the time. And I mean, like, nations are coming to Israel to see, like, this glorious king that you have and his wisdom and the visible glory and glory and glory and glory and glory. And just like, wow, well, what, could more, what more could it possibly be? This must be it. This is the fulfillment right here. So I wonder what Solomon would say about that. And I'm assuming that he wrote Ecclesiastes, but, you know, just to make a point here. We don't have Solomon as the exalting king going, yeah, this is it. But as he opens up that book, he is in the garden again. In fact, the Hebrew uses a word there for garden that only uses in uh, Genesis to, to make this connection, I think. There he is planting his garden and watering pools. And, and he's just like, yes, I finally did it. What is he saying? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I returned, saw under the sun, the race was not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither your bread to the wise, nor your riches to men of understanding, nor your favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. It's all for naught, nothing. God has given me an olam on my heart. An age is written on my heart. An eternity is written on my heart. I have a job to do. I want dominion. I'm the king. I have the resources. If anyone's going to do it, it's me. And I can't. Why? Because creation is subject to vanity, futility. I, we all go to one place. All go to one place, he says. All are from the dust. 
And to dust, all return, he's lamenting the curse, right? So rather, I mean, at one level, you have in this moment this profound foreshadowing of the Messiah. But at another level, as soon as you're asking, is this it? No, no, this is not it. And in fact, the book, that moment becomes a cry for the need for one who could truly have dominion. The one who could truly not be subject to this vanity. That's the one we need. Not Solomon, even though he was so glorious. Not Solomon but the one greater than Solomon, not this age, not under the sun, but life beyond the sun. And it's almost like that insight gives, sparks this whole division of the kingdom, and then you have the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and then the, the kings go rogue, and the prophets are against the kings, and it's just pretty soon everyone agrees, like Adam, Israel has transgressed the covenant, as Isaiah says. And so... Like Adam, they have to be exiled from the land. Same way. And then the prophets start to speak about this. They start to guide the people as to what's happening and what's coming. And the way they do this is fascinating. They talk about it in terms of a decreation and a recreation. Right? So they look at Israel and Judah heading back into Babylon and just dissipating to the nations. And they're saying, this is like creation. In fact, Jeremiah 4 verse 23, I looked on the earth. And behold, it was without form and void. There's that tohu and vohu language, exactly the same. And to the heavens, and they had no light. It's like back to that watery chaos. And yet this chaotic formlessness is going to be the backdrop where God will once again work to bring forth his remnants, which is described as a new creation. And it's associated to a new covenant. And it is talking about a new temple, and it has a new Eden in mind, and there's the true Messiah at the center of all of this. The tree of life, once again, inviting man to dwell in Sabbath glory, in a life beyond the veil. And we know after Daniel's ministry, they get a shot to go back in, right? So Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra and so forth. And they go back in, they work as best they can. But I mean, we're not even asking the question again. We get the answer that return to covenant transgression sooner than you can imagine. And despite their best efforts, they're weeping at the end. This is not even close to what we had. It's not even close to what the prophets have said were coming. And so now, here is the corporate Adam like the first Adam, like Lamech with Noah, desperate. We have no hope. We have no hope unless you bring it in. Unless you give us hope, there is no hope. You are our only hope, Lord. But where is this Messiah? Where is Noah? Where is the one that you have promised? And at this point, you know, you're sort of thinking, has, has the darkness overcome the light? And they wait. For 400 years, they wait. Let's so get to those words in John 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Verse 4, in him was life. Now, we're talking Sabbath life, right? You got that. And life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Spirit of God, who hovered over the face of the waters, now hovers over the virgin womb to bring forth the last Adam, the first of the true new order, who is shown 
by his genealogies to be the promised king of Israel and the fulfillment of all that was said concerning the promised seed. And by God himself becoming incarnate, he is now for the first time within the reach of Satan's strike. And strike he does, right? Immediately, the recapitulation begins, just like with Pharaoh, again with Herod, again and again, all these. And yet, both instances, out of Egypt, I called my son. And Matthew picks this up, and he's like, see, see, he's fulfilling everything. This whole recapitulation thing is happening. And then, as soon as he's at the priestly age, he gets to John the Baptist, that culminative moment, as Fesco puts it, that culminative moment where he is baptized. Why? Because there he is at the Jordan of all places, where this thing has been reenacted so many times. I mean, this is it. And there, those waters have a very clear meaning. They represent the judgment of God that must fall upon man. And Jesus says, I associate myself with that judgment. That judgment will fall upon me. And he goes beneath the waters and he ascends from the waters as an ark for those who would place their trust in him. He would take them through the Jordan to the true Canaan. And what do you have? A dove. The Spirit falls upon him as a dove to bring evidence that the new creation has now finally dawned. Right? Finally, I love what Michael Horton said. The Spirit, uh, this is great. This is why we love Michael Horton. The Spirit comes from the consummated future of Sabbath glory. Like the dove that brought Noah a leafy twig in its beak as a harbinger of new life beyond the waters of judgment. The true Son of God, where this very scene had been symbolically reenacted. Now here is the true Son of God, the true Adam. But of course we're asking, now we know we've been trained by the Old Testament, so we get to this point and we go, what's the question? Well, can he do better than the first Adam? Right, that's the obvious question. You've got to ask that. You've been trained. And now, now you're asking, can he do better? And that's exactly what you should be asking because the same Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, right, in the very way and worse, but in a, in a recapitulative manner, in a recapitulative manner, right? So the period of 40 as Israel went through the wilderness, except now worse, and yet where Israel failed to believe the word of God, Jesus upholds the law, Deuteronomy. Tempted by Satan concerning eating once again in a million times worse situation than Adam ever was. He lifts the weight of that temptation to its full capacity. The only man in history who was able not to fall under that weight. So the answer is yes. But as Mike pointed out, it's not just that he didn't sin, right? He goes on and he does everything that the law requires. Obedient to the law to show that he is obedient as the last Adam never failing to obey, positively obeying, doing everything that is required, even in his dominion, having more than Adam could ever have dreamed of, right? I mean, the only one in history who has supreme mastery over creation, raising people from the dead. He is sovereign over dead. Uh, he has dominion over death itself. He's exactly what, what Solomon was looking for. He commands the wind and the waves. He's walking on water and so forth, right? Why? so that he could be the one that leads us into Sabbath glory. 
so that he can stand up at the temple and say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Noah. Now, the, the thing about this, I love this. It's like he, it's like he, pre- he says that to the people in front of him. It's almost like he's, he's saying it throughout. The, he's preaching through the corridors of time or something and saying, and saying, all that you have hoped for, what Methuselah longed for, what Lamech longed for, what Israel longed for, the whole way through is now fulfilled in me. I have done what is necessary. And so Jesus explains, John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's Sabbath, right? He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Why could he say that? Because he had already received the waters of judgment. That's what he would do at the cross, right? I find the idea of a flood quite terrifying, a global flood. Can you imagine such a thing? Right? It was the wrath of God, but it was a kind of typological wrath. Right? And then you have Sodom and Gomorrah also, like, wow, that sounds very, very frightening. All right? And then not to mention the plagues. But what's, what's crazy about this is we never actually see the full wrath of God in history. That's for the end. And those are like terrifying, but only picture forms of the wrath. There's only one time that we see it in history, and that's on the cross. With that wrath, that pure wrath, not a typological wrath, but the wrath itself that would have fallen on you and me, fell upon the Savior. As Borah writes, in order to save his people from the fiery vengeance, the sword of God's judgment, Jesus split the day of the Lord in two, initiating its blessings and absorbing the first blows of divine judgment into himself rather than having this rage of heaven seal like a weapon of destruction upon your soul. And he endured this, this flaming judgment, this hell poured out upon him, division from the Father. Unrestrained wrath, a loud cry as Satan bites And Jesus surrenders his spirit. But in that moment, the enemy is crushed. Why? Because the new covenant was finally inaugurated. And light had now come to those who sat in darkness. It says the earth shook. The rocks were split. Nature itself, normally indifferent to this sort of thing, seems to have awoken at this point to express that its futility is no more, right? There is an inbreaking of the power of the age to come in this very moment. It says in Matthew 27, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, This was the Son of God. And at that moment, the temple veil is split almost as if the fiery sword itself comes and 
divides it in two, and the, the embroidered cherubim step aside, making the way past the menorah lampstand available to enter into God's throne room. Eternal life now available for God's people. The new creation had dawned. And even so, we see a prelude of this in the, in the resurrection itself. There, imagine, Christ stands before his disciples, Roman guards, as if dead at that point, at the glory of this whole thing, stands before his disciples as the firstborn of many brethren. Again, Horton, he says, in this, we have an infallible proof that the new age has dawned. Jesus of Nazareth has been raised, glorified in our flesh, as the first fruits of the new creation. The future glory of the consummated Sabbath has been inaugurated already. Jesus' resurrection is not a different one from ours, but is the beginning of the full harvest. The powers of the age to come have broken in already. With Christ as the firstborn from the dead, and as he is now, so shall we be. The last Adam standing before his bride helper once again, calling her forth and tasking her to go out through the nations. The new, as Lad says, the new spiritual Eden from which the disciples must move outwardly to expand God's temple. Multiplication once again, but now no longer in the image of the man of dust, but in the image of the man of glory. No longer through physical birth, but through spiritual birth. No longer through procreation, but proclamation. Right, and on we keep going. There he is telling his disciples that they are the new people that beckon forth to the life to come. And every single person that becomes a Christian becomes a brick in God's eschatological temple, so to speak. As Paul says, they are a new creation for God. And he uses Genesis language. He said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So they get to Pentecost. And there the Spirit is poured out to, to show that Jesus is indeed the ascended King. And the tongues of fire fall upon the disciples, right? They are the new menorah lampstand. They are the ones who are in Christ. They are the ones who represent the presence of God. They are the ones who now beckon to life beyond the veil. They are the only ones who can have the eschatological fire of God fall upon them and not be consumed. They stand in heavenly Mount Zion. They are seated with Christ in heavenly places. They already stand there. So amazing. Again, that book I was telling you about earlier, um, Sung, he writes this. The church then, think about this. The church, in this sense, already is the reverse image of heavenly Jerusalem and the outcome of the vertical ascension of Christ. In Christ, the church does not wait on earth to go to heaven, but waits in heaven to finish its earthly pilgrimage. Because Jesus is there and you're in him. And the Spirit can never depart from you. It cannot depart from Jesus. We're in heaven waiting to get to heaven. In one sense, we're already home in Christ. 
Hence, we are more eager to return there once our earthly mission is complete. But like Noah in the ark, we do have a little time to wait as these waters recede, right? As the temple comes from heaven once again to rest upon the earth. And until that time, Peter tells the church, you must live as two aged sojourners. That's where I got the name for the podcast if you didn't pick that up, right? But that concept, sojourners and exiles, like the time before they were in the land and after. And that means that every single step that you take is going to have one foot in this age that is ending and the same foot in this age that is never ending. And what is the implication of that? That means that on your best day, as you keep keep taking these steps forward through this earthly pilgrimage, on your best day, you'll never get rid of that, that sin that now characterizes this fallen evil age. You can't do it. It's there. And you'll struggle with it on your best day. And that's not weird. That's not improper. That's what it is. And yet, here's the glory. In that same moment, because you are a citizen in heaven and one foot is in an eternal age, no matter the severity of that sin, no, I mean, no matter the severity of that struggle, what are you thinking about now? Yes, that. No matter how bad it gets, our citizenship is going nowhere. We are in the age to come. We are seated in heavenly places with Christ. As Taylor puts it, it's true. Not yet are believers glorified. Not yet are we sinless. Not yet are believers recipients of their new bodies. Not yet are believers in full eschatological glory. But are already we are new creatures. Creatures. Already, I was thinking about this the other day, I was telling the guys, you know, already, think about this, already we have more than Adam ever had before the fall. (laughs) Already we have the eschatological glory that is intruded into the age. We already have what Adam never had before the fall. Have you thought about that? I find that mind-blowing still. I was thinking about that on the plane and it's still blowing my mind. But we already are heirs of the kingdom. That's what we're saying when we say that. Already they are indwe- we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Already God is our Abba, Father. That's a covenantal thing. We are now in the new creation. Already is Christ our brother. Already are we living in the resurrection of Jesus. Already we enjoy the eschatological reward in that sense. And in this, we are among the people of God who from the beginning have known that what was true throughout their time of earthly pilgrimage would one day be expressed in consummate perfection with Christ, the tree of life, at the center of the new cosmic order. See what a glorious doctrine this is? Wow! Wow! Oh, my goodness. It's like you just have to understand it, and then it just takes you from there. You just, you just worship from that point on. That's the only application, you know. In that regard, let me pray with you. Father, we give you thanks for this great, glorious good news, and we ask that you would help us to dwell in its goodness. We thank you that we know that we're not deserving of a thing. We are deserving of judgment. And yet, what, look what we have, what you've given us, what you've poured upon us, 
what is ours already, I pray, God, that you would help us to live as two-age sojourners. Help us to live in light of this reality. Help us to live knowing that we have eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.